last Sunday morning, Pastor made the statement as he started preaching that the message that he was bringing was one that, he used the term, was one of an overflow. It was something that God was speaking to him about, and his message was a result of that thought. And I guess in, in some way, this one tonight is a similar type of that. Um, I've been working in my own personal studies. Is this on? Uh, I've been working in my own personal study through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a remarkable, remarkable book. And, and as I was going through, we read a section in chapter 2, uh, and there was a verse in that passage that really stuck out to me. It was one of those ones that you, you've read multiple times, and all of a sudden one day you read it in a different light, and it sticks out in a different way. And it's been sort of just floating around in my head. It's been coming back. It's been a verse that I've been meditating on for several weeks now. And this message is a result of that thought. Put a bookmark in the book of Hebrews. We'll actually be coming to that passage that we read a bit closer to the end of our message. Um, but before we get there, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation, a little bit of a a if you will, logical progression to where we are going to be ending up. We're going to be ending up in Hebrews 2, but have your Bibles ready. We're going to be looking at a whole bunch of different passages leading up to there. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're laying a foundation here. We're going to do a bunch of verses sort of rapid fire in nature, and then we'll culminate them all in uh, once we get to Hebrews. Um, I don't intend to be long. If you've heard me preach more than once, you know I don't preach long, but I hope that uh, this thought will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you. Matthew chapter 14, again, we're gonna look at sort of a rapid style type of verse. Look at verse number 33. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. The context here uh, is uh, after Peter has walked on the water, he's, he's fallen the Lord has picked him up. Look at verse number 33. It says, And they that were in the ship came uh, and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Flip over to Matthew chapter 16, just a couple chapters over, a couple pages in your Bible, Matthew chapter 16. And verse number 16, this is when Jesus confronts his disciples. He asks them, who do men say that I am? And of course, Peter has uh, the response, verse number 16, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Turn over one book to Mark chapter 1, very first chapter of the book, the introduction there, Mark chapter 1. The book begins, verse number one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Turn over the next book, Luke chapter one. We'll be coming into the Christmas season soon. This will be a verse that no doubt will be referenced many times. Luke chapter one, verse 35, when the announcement is being made to Mary, Gabriel, the angel, verse 35 says, and the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Next book over, John chapter three. 
There is a trend in all these verses. Hopefully you're beginning to pick up on it. John chapter 3. Look, if you would, verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Same book, John chapter 20. Towards the end of the book, John chapter 20. Two more references that we're, we're looking at in this section. John chapter 20, verse number 31. I would label this the theme book, theme verse of the book of John. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. One more verse, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Verse number 20 is following him receiving his eyesight back, being baptized in verse 18. Verse 20, and straightway he, Paul, preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. In all the verses that we've looked at, we have seen a title for Christ over and over and over again. What is that title that we read over and over again? It's the Son of God. Of course, we could go through many, many more. This is just a, a handful of the verses that give Christ this title. Uh, we know that is his position in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son. He is the capital S. Every passage that we went through had the capital S, Son of God. Just a few of these of just a few of the references that give him this title. But Jesus is not the only one with this title, Son of God. Turn back to the book of John. We're laying a foundation here. John chapter 1. Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power, note, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Obviously, lowercase s, son here, but the same title is given sons of God to them that believe on his name. Romans chapter 8. A few books over to the right. Romans chapter 8. And verse number 14. Paul writes here, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. A couple books over to the right. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And verse number 15. Again, Paul writing here says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. He says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. And then finally, over to the book of First John.
down towards the end of your Bibles, 1 John chapter 3. Be looking at two verses in this chapter. Verse number 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Verse number 2, it's repeated, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. As we look at these verses, we see that Christ is given the title of capital S, Son of God. He is God the Son. He is that member of the Trinity. We actually, I think, both uh, in Sunday school and Sunday morning, it was mentioned, the Trinity, and how that's a very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around, uh, the, the three individual entities being one God. But God the Son is the capital S, Son of God. But as we look at all these passages, we also see that you and I who believe are given this title, the sons, lowercase s, sons of God as well. Each one of these passages here, as we just read, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Romans says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, that's you and I who believe, they are the sons of God. And we just went through all those verses. John chapter 1, As many as believed on him, uh, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. It's an interesting thing here that you and I as Christians, you and I as believers, are given this title, sons of God, when that is also the title that Christ carries. That is the title that Christ carries, capital S, son of God, you and I being lowercase, sons of God. This leads us to a remarkable conclusion. Turn over to the book of Romans. Again, we're laying a bit of foundation before we get to the book of Hebrews. Look at Romans chapter 8. We already read one verse in the same passage that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at a slightly longer section here. Romans chapter 8. Looking once again at verse number 14. We already read this one a moment ago. I'm in Romans chapter 9. There we go, Romans chapter 8, verse number 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That's the verse we just read a moment ago. Look at verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Keep your finger in Romans. We'll be coming back to this passage uh, in just a moment. But flip over to Galatians, and we're going to look at a very similar passage, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, look with me in verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, 
to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because ye are sons, verse six, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Verse seven, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Flip back to Romans chapter eight, uh, and we'll be looking just very briefly at this passage. But what we see here is an incredible thought. We looked at the fact that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16 tells us that. He is the capital, a, uh, capital S, excuse me, Son of God. But you and I as well are also sons of God. Romans and Galatians tells us not only begotten as Christ was, but through adoption. Look at Romans chapter eight, once again. Verse 15 says, but ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Again, Galatians that we just read a moment ago uh, says that we might receive the adoption of sons. This word adoption is a crucial word. Um, and for the ancient world that Paul was writing to, carried a bit more weight than what we might consider today. If, if you were to go and to adopt someone today, it is simply you bringing them in and legally becoming them becoming part of your family. That in and of itself is a remarkable thing. We are brought into the family of God. But for the context that we're looking at, if someone was to adopt someone, they weren't simply brought into the family as, uh, if you will, a lower class member of that family. They were brought in as a adult son in the family. What that means in, in a world where, where inheritance, when leadership of a family was passed from father to son, when you were brought into that family, you were brought in with all the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance that a son, a natural born son in that family would receive. That's why when we see in Romans chapter eight, uh, verse number, let me see, let me see, verse number 17, it says, if children then heirs, heirs of God, and look what it says, joint heirs with Christ. Christ is the only begotten son of God, we know that. But you and I, as the adopted sons of God, we come in with the same privileges. We come in with the same rights. That is why we are able to boldly go before the throne. That is why we're able to have confidence in our prayer. That is why we're able to have confidence uh, in our relationship with God because of this adoption. That's an incredible thought. That is an incredible thought. There is no difference uh, legally speaking, between a natural born son, between an adopted son. And as Christians, we have those same privileges, we have those same rights, we are heirs together with Christ. That thought by itself is incredible, but that's not where we are going to finish today. Turn now to Hebrews chapter two. That was all a little bit of foundation, a little bit of uh, laying the basis for this verse that we are going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two, really the beginning part of the book of Hebrews is regarding 
Christ taking on flesh. Uh, and it's a, regarding the fact that as God becoming man, he's the perfect mediator. He's the perfect intercessor. He's the perfect high priest for us uh, because he knows us. And we're not going to necessarily look at all the thoughts in the beginning chapters of Hebrews, but that is the context of Hebrews chapter 2. We read a passage beginning in verse number 9 regarding that. Skip down to verse number 11. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Pause there for a moment. We'll look at the second half in just a minute. For both he that sanctifieth, that's Christ, and they who are sanctified, that's us, are all of one. Galatians 3, Paul puts it this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, for both he that sanctifieth Christ, them who are sanctified, that's us, are all of one. And then look at the second half of this verse. For which cause he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them us, Brethren, let that thought just sink in just a moment. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I am a middle child. I have an older brother. I have a younger sister. And I know there were times growing up where my older brother was embarrassed by me being around. He was with his group of friends. Uh, they were doing whatever they were doing, and I was there, the kid brother, hanging around. I know that because I felt the same way about my sister. Uh, there was times where I, I was with my friends. We were doing what we were doing. And I was like, man, can you just leave us alone? You're embarrassing me. You're bothering me. Why are you hanging around with us? If ever there was, uh, if you will, a sibling to be embarrassed by someone else, it is Christ of us. Think about that. Think about this. He is the perfect God-man. He is the Word incarnate. He is the creator. He's the head of all principalities and powers. We know all of these things. He's King of kings. He's Lord of lords. And then there's us. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In us there dwelleth no good thing. And yet, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he is not ashamed, he's not embarrassed to call us brethren. My goodness. This is a thought that has been just sort of bouncing around in my head. And the fact remains that I know there's nothing in myself that is making me worthy of this. I know it's not anything I have earned. And yet the same grace and mercy that saved us is the same grace and mercy that puts us into this position. For which cause he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Put your name into that verse. Put my name into that verse. Christ looks at us. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted into his family. And yet despite ourselves, despite our shortcomings, he looks at us 
He's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed by who we are. Two thoughts. I mentioned at the beginning, I want it to be an encouragement and a challenge. Two thoughts. Here's the encouragement. Very simply, this is the way Christ views us. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on how many times we fall and get up and fall and get up. No, no, no. Just the same way that uh, we did not have anything to do with our adoption. We were simply saved by grace. We know these thoughts. The same way that we were saved, we were adopted, is why Christ views us this way. His righteousness is on our account. We did not earn it, and consequently then, we cannot lose it. We cannot uh, change the way that Christ views us. That's the encouragement. Here's the challenge, and there's two parts to this. I'm almost done. I told you it was a brief thought, but it's one that's been bouncing around in my head. Here's the challenge. First of all, we read in the passage, two, Hebrews 2, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Christ is not ashamed of us. Who am I to be ashamed of him? Who am I in whatever context, in whatever group I'm with, whoever I'm around, wherever I am, who am I to be ashamed of him? Romans chapter one, verse 16, very familiar verse. Paul makes the statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Second Timothy, uh, in chapter one, Paul makes the statement, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Paul multiple times, that is just a couple of the instances, he multiple times in his letters, he makes the statement about not being ashamed of Christ. And when we look at Paul's life, we see that. Didn't make a difference whether he was in prison, didn't make a difference whether he was on a shipwreck. Wherever he was, there was never a point where he was ashamed of Christ. That is the mindset that we ought to have. That is the, the, the boldness that we ought to have. And if it comes from the knowledge that Christ is not ashamed of me with all of my shortcomings, who am I to be ashamed of the perfect Christ? It's a lot easier, I think, for me to not be ashamed of him than him to not be ashamed of me. So, first part of the challenge is this. If Christ is not ashamed of us, neither should we be ashamed of him. The second part is this. We mentioned already that this thought is not dependent on us. It is a product of our salvation. It's a product of our justification. However, that being said, the knowledge of that ought to encourage me, ought to challenge me then to live my life in such a way that an heir with Christ would. It should change the way I behave. It should change the way I think. Again, we cannot lose our salvation, we cannot lose this adoption, we can't lose this position because we didn't earn it. But the knowledge that I am now adopted into the family of God, I'm an heir together with Christ, that should change the way I live. That should change the way I, I behave. 
man, I want to live in a way that is fitting to a child of God. Uh, we have up on our wall the, the theme, I guess, if we want to call it for the second half of this year, what would Jesus do? We bear the name Christians. How much are we truly little Christs? How much are we truly living as one who, who is a good representation? How much are we living as one that Christ would not be ashamed to call us his brethren? Again, we know that that is part of our position being saved. I'm not talking about losing that, but I am talking about looking into my life, making sure that I am living that way. Later in the book of Hebrews, we're not going to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter uh, 11, the great faith chapter, it makes a remarkable statement regarding some of the, the, the men and women who are listed in that chapter. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but it makes the statement regarding them that God was not ashamed to be called their God. I think that's just such an incredible statement. And it's similar to what we see here. And so here's the thought as, as we, we're sort of wrapping up this here. It says, he, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, the encouragement there is that this is how we are viewed in Christ. We are viewed as justified. We are viewed as righteous. We are adopted into the family of God. We have all the rights all the privileges of anyone else, of, of, of that adult son in the family, those privileges, those abilities. That's the encouragement. The challenge then is for us. If Christ is not ashamed of me, what business do I have being ashamed of him? What business do I have of, of neglecting to lift him up in my life? What business do I have, uh, if you will, to hide that light under a bushel, uh, to reference that, that children's song? My life should be one that I am just so overflowing with joy, with gratitude for what Christ has done for me, for the position that I have been put in, for, for the adoption into his family that I don't care what the environment, I don't care who's around me, I don't care what context I'm in, there should be no context that leads me to be ashamed of Christ. If Christ is not ashamed of us, neither should we be ashamed of him. And we ought to live in a way that a joint heir with Christ would. This, this thought, this little phrase, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, uh, has, has been this thought that has been traveling around in my brain, been one that I've been meditating on. And every time it, it reemerges in my thinking, it's one that continually astounds me. It's one that amazes me. It leaves me in awe because... I know myself, and you know yourself, uh, and none of us are worthy to be in the family of God. None of us are worthy to have that adoption. None of us are worthy to come boldly before the throne of grace. 
None of us are worthy. And yet, and yet, and yet, through it all, we are adopted. And Christ doesn't look at us then as, yeah, they're in the family, but they're just some lower class. They're, they're on the bottom tier. They're low. No. He looks at us, and he is not ashamed. He's not embarrassed. He's not ashamed to call us, to call you, to call me his brethren. That is just such an incredible thought. And if we allow that to just absorb into our mind, I think that will change the way we behave. Because then when we remember that we are acting as a child of God, we are living as a representative of the family of God, as a joint heir with Christ, we ought to live then truly as a child of God should, without being ashamed of Christ, who for only his great love, his great mercy knows is not ashamed of us. I hope this thought is, is an encouragement and a little bit of a challenge to you, and I hope it's one that sort of sticks in your mind. It's a very simple phrase. It's a very short phrase, uh, and it's an easy one to, to memorize, to stick in your mind, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them, and put your name in that verse, to call them brethren. Lord, we love you. Lord, I can't even begin to comprehend the